1: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 62. Today's episode is all about grief to growth and heartbreak to wholeness.
2: For people who think that they can avoid grief or positive think their way out of it, I'm gonna tell you, you can't. (laughs) You have to feel it. I will say that I find that the grief period is one of the most fertile times of your entire life for growth. And it's because you are vulnerable and it's because you are open And as long as you open and you don't shut down and you don't become bitter, you become better. That's the choice is that you get to decide not that this happened to you, but it is a new beginning.
0: Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti.
1: Mind Love is a Castbox original. You can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but Castbox is pretty awesome, so I hope you'll give it a try. And tap that cute little button that says subscribe. More subscribers means even better guests and even more value. Plus, it helps grow the show, so more people can find it, and if you ask me, everyone can use a little more Mind Love. Plus, I'll really appreciate it. Hi, friends. Today's story pulls at my heartstrings, and I think it's because I love my marriage so much. So, of course, I've watched sad Lifetime movies where someone loses their husband or wife, and it it just seems so devastating. But there's always been this disconnect. Right now, I'm lucky enough to be married to someone who also leads an intentional life and who inspires me and learns with me and holds me accountable. And I feel like through our lifetimes, we're going to be building this empire together. And I realized that if I ever had a moment where I considered what it would be like to become a widow early in life, I was picturing some regular old husband, you know, some generic movie husband where you barely see his face because he's not really the main character. But today's guest hit home for me because he doesn't fit that minor character husband role. They really did build an empire together. Today's guest is Christine Carlson. For the boomers out there, you might recognize her husband, Richard Carlson, as the creator of the series Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. He wrote like 30 books, and these books have sold over 15 million copies worldwide. So Richard was really the face of the brand, even though Christine did co-author a few of the books with him. But for the most part, Christine was his supporting character. She'll tell you herself that she was in a pretty traditional feminine role. She ran the household while he ran the brand. And then one day, totally unexpectedly, he died. And as hard and as tragic as that was, it forced Christine to step into her own power and take over the legacy. What I love about this story, though, is most often I hear of people hitting rock bottom and that's what forces them to seek and to develop and be more than they were. But in her story, it's really interesting to hear how someone handles their pain when they've already had such a solid foundation built in their mindset. But the story does get pretty crazy and includes a stalker that's still in jail right now because of the crap he pulled. So get ready. Today, we will learn how to surrender to the unexpected, how to properly hold space for someone's grief, and how to find identity after tragic loss. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning Mind Love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless, based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the miracle tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Christine Carlson to the show. Ah, Thanks, Melissa. So good to be here. So you and your family have actually been helping people in the self-development field for a few decades now. So tell us a little about your background.
2: Yeah. So as you heard in my introduction that I'm the co-author with my late husband, Dr. Richard Carlson of the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff book series. So if you're young, like Melissa, you may not have heard of that series as much as the boomers heard of it. It's about a 21-year-old brand and series now, but it's been very popular globally, and it remains to be very popular now. And it's basically the books are about know, how to live a happy life, how to access your mental health and well-being. So Richard wrote his 10th book was Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And he had written nine books prior to that, all dealing with happiness and how to be happy no matter what, shortcut through therapy and so forth. But on the 10th anniversary of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, we're both in our 40s. I was 43. He was 45. Two kids in high school, you know, really at the peak of our lives in a lot of ways, And Richard was promoting his latest book, and he got on a plane, and he died suddenly from a pulmonary embolism on the descent of that flight. So it was like one day, everything was cool, and we were moving along with our lives, you know, busy as can be. And the next day, everything stopped. And, you know, our lives, my daughters and mine, his parents, my parents, our family, and all of his fans, our lives were shattered at this loss. It was just so unexpected. And it really took me completely by surprise, so much so that I had what would be called a true awakening from my loss. And I probably wouldn't have been considered to be much of an asleep kind of person, quite honestly. But I had an even deeper awakening, a deeper understanding. As my heart was shattered, I was really heartbroken, open, to living far more awake and far more present than I had been previously living. And that's kind of the short end of the story. You know, it it really catapulted me and my family into grief and on a healing journey. So, yeah,
1: that's the beginning. (laughs) I like how you called that out, how you wouldn't have considered yourself to be someone who's asleep, especially with the topics of books that you and your late husband created. I feel the same just with all of the time and effort that I put into my own self development. So sometimes, when something hits me in an unexpected place, it always kind of takes me by surprise. But it, it really goes to show you that no matter what stage you're at, or no matter how long you've been at this, there's always another layer to peel back and you never know what it's going to take to crack that open to shine that light in.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know,
1: sometimes
2: when you have a really busy life and you have a lot of success and you're young and, you know, it's easy to get lulled into some complacency from that, you know, when things are rolling along and everything seems like it's going as planned, oftentimes the prescription for growth, you know, it's the prescription for enjoying life and joy, but not necessarily the prescription for growth. And so, I really believe that our soul chooses to be here because we are here to grow. And I really realized right away that my soul and Richard's soul had some kind of contract, that this was how I would grow the most. And it was very painful because Richard is and was the love of my life and still is. He remains the love of my life today. He was just a real exceptional man too. He's not like most men. He was very unique, which is why I think he left such a beautiful body of work behind because he was very unique. I feel very much in tune to him today, but it was a journey going through loss in grieving the physical, you know, and finding my way to pick up the pieces and pick up the pieces for my family as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When people think about losing a loved one, there's the obvious feelings of pain, like feeling alone and not having that person that you're used to having with you all the time. But there's so much more that we grieve alongside of that, that we don't really think of until it happens to us. In your case, you guys had spent decades building this beautiful foundation. So I'm sure you had so many more plans for your future than what you had already accomplished. So what else were you grieving in those moments?
2: Well, and that's a really great point. You know, what happens for anyone that goes through a major change in transition, oftentimes the big losses, whether it be from the loss of a loved one through death or divorce, the loss of your home, is it it really puts you in a crisis, an emotional crisis, you know, an identity crisis, because we're very identified with and attached to you know, our lives, the way we built them. I mean, I think that that is the nature of what we grieve is the loss of identity. You know, and and in my case, more than half of my identity was certainly tied up in being Richard's wife. We were together for 25 years. So I never really understood what adult life would be like without him. So, of course, that was huge. And then the other piece is our family, that we had two daughters in high school and I mean, it's one thing to go through that kind of loss yourself. It's a whole different ball game to watch your kids go through it. And it isn't anything that Richard would have wished on any of us, especially the girls. They had an ideal life when he was alive. And it was a totally different life when he died. I mean, it leaves a really big hole in your lives for quite some time. But the beauty is that If you put your mind on healing and you put your heart on allowing yourself to feel your feelings and grieve and go through the loss, and you actually go through the feelings of loss and you allow yourself to heal, the beauty is our family did come together in a really amazing way. And we really supported each other during those years. And We really have come together to be a beautiful family today because of our openness to healing and our openness to going through grief and being of support to one another.
1: Okay, but then right after that, you actually ended up with a stalker. Yeah. (laughs) So what happened there? What was going on? Yeah.
2: So, you know, in my book, From Heartbreak to Wholeness, I talk about what it means to have an initiation by crisis. And the word initiation is really profound because it's really an initiation into an awakening, an awakening to a new dream, an awakening to a new life. You kind of are going along your life in a certain trajectory and then an event happens And it suddenly stops you short and it pretty much annihilates everything you knew. And now you're on a whole new journey. Well, part of my whole new journey, unfortunately, (laughs) included that I, about 11 months into my loss, I decided that one of the best preparations I could do for having a new book come out, which I had was publishing a letter that Richard had written to me called an hour to live an hour to love. And it, it turned into a little book. It's a 37 page love letter that he gave to me on our anniversary, answering the question, if you had an hour to live and could make one phone call, who would it be to? What would you say? And why are you waiting? And so he answered that question to me and then I published it back as his tribute so that his audience, so his fans could know that he had past. And then Oprah was coming out with a Mitch Alba movie for one more day at that time, and they decided to have me on, and they decided to do a beautiful tribute to Richard on that episode. So during the courtship phase of that, and when I knew that book was going to be published, I thought, well, the best thing I could do would be to go to The Path of Love, this workshop that I'd heard of in Verona, Italy. And I knew that I needed to be able to grieve in front of millions of people, and I wasn't sure I was capable of doing that.
1: What was it about grieving publicly that you were afraid of?
2: I wanted to make sure that I could just go and be myself, and if tears came, that they would come, you know, naturally, and I wouldn't block them or be stoic. And so I went to this workshop, and on the way to this workshop, my closest girlfriend. Lisa was going with me and I knew I shouldn't be traveling alone because I was 11 months in grief. It was very raw and very, very uncensored and really just super vulnerable. That's the truth is when you're in that kind of grief, you are very vulnerable. I knew I was. So she was supposed to be traveling with me and we had all planned and we were there at the airport and I got my bags up and in, you know, onto the baggage claim and or onto the, into the baggage and got my seat. And then she put hers up there and she was leafing through her manila folder and her passport was not there. And she had had it, but she thinks it might've fallen out when she went to the ladies room. So she scrambled around looking for her passport and couldn't find it anywhere. Well, I decided that I needed to go anyways. I kind of thought what could happen? You know, we had a car picking us up at the airport, you know, it's a flight or two flights. was flying to London Heathrow and then from London Heathrow to Milan. And I said, okay, what could happen? So I went. And then when I went up to turn my ticket at the business class line, we'd purchased two business class seats. They told me that I wasn't in business class. I was in economy plus. And I was like, Wow. You know, in my head, I'm like, well, I don't want to be a snot, but I haven't really flown economy to Europe in a really long time. (laughs) And I thought, wow, maybe I should turn around. You know, this is the second obstacle. And then something in me just said, you know what, it's okay. You're going to be fine. Go ahead and go and just deal with it. So I went and sat down, and I sat down on this flight, and I got settled. I turned to my fellow passenger, and I said hello, and it was a man in his late 20s, and he was from England, and as I got settled and the plane took off, he kind of said, excuse me, do you know anything about divine consciousness? That was his first question to me. And, you know, from where I was sitting and where I was in my life, you know, I was kind of Felt like I was straddling dimensions. I was straddling where I was. I was straddling where Richard was. You know, like I really kind of was in divine consciousness most of the time. And I thought, oh, yeah, boy, do I know. And I thought to myself, I kind of laughed. I thought, well, maybe this is why I've been seated in the seat because I'm supposed to have this conversation. And so, We proceeded to have a very in depth conversation, which I had, you know, shared with him like my story a little bit, like how I understood divine consciousness. And then, you know, I went to remember eating my dinner, going to sleep, waking up and landing and just saying goodbye. Well, after that, this person just began to send me emails and my assistant would read them and flag them. And they were disturbing. And then they got more disturbing because at the end he said, you know, you think you can ignore me now, but you won't be able to ignore me. And when you come back out into the public eye, I'm going to be there and you're going to see me and you're going to know I'm there. And so he was all over me, like in everybody I knew on social media, it's hard to describe to anybody the level of harassment that this person did. And it was intense and unreasonable and sick and hateful and evil on so many levels. And it wasn't just about me. It was about my girls, my family. And he just had this campaign and he had a lot of time on his hands and he was pretty smart too. And he really got himself around social media really well with a lot of aliases. And, you know, people knew I had a troll, like that's the way they looked at it. I had really negative comments all over the place. They're still online on my Ted talk all over the place, you know, because, he had a lot of aliases, and he could he could make a big impact. But that really was not my biggest concern. My biggest concern was that he was a stalker, and he did make a trip to the U.S. He thought he was going to marry my youngest daughter and then sort of do away with me and live on our goodwill or whatever. I don't know. But it was a very delusional thing that he went through, and he was a delusional person.
1: Oh, my gosh. You really have to wonder, like... What was somebody doing before they devoted their entire life to you?
2: Yes, it was quite traumatic. You know, it was quite traumatic to be dealing with that at the same time as going through grief. However, I will say that because I do find meaning in everything that happens to me, and I do look for the silver lining, I will say that the reason why I chose From Heartbreak to Wholeness, the hero's journey to joy, is because I believe that my meeting with him was very divine in the sense that I had a big mission. I had to hold up my husband's legacy to continue. And I had work that was going to come forward of my own that was going to help a lot of people. And I also had a family that I had to take care of amidst growing you know, our brand online and all sorts of stuff. So I had a big, big mission that was calling a lot on me to attend to. And I believe that this person really called me into what I call the masculine, you know, that I was extremely feminine, had lived a very feminine existence and in a very traditional way. And I really had to, you know, buck up and in a way, man up, you know, I had to like, I had to get, I had to get protective. And that really called me into being the hero. So very much a part of my initiation by crisis event (laughs) too. Back to back. So yes, I had a stalker and, you know, I can't say I'm happy about it for him because I think he really needed help, but he is in jail for what he did to me and my daughter, Kenna. So he is serving a four and a half year jail sentence. So that can kind of let your listeners know it wasn't any small deal. It was a big deal. And it's hard for me to describe the level of harassment that we received by him.
1: Wow. Such crazy timing. I know for me, most of my life, I just thought I was going to be this independent woman, which I still am, but independent. Like I really thought that relationships held me back. It was like I always had this armor on or afraid to let people in. I called it my hard candy shell. (laughs) But once I found my husband, I totally let that guard down and I just allowed myself to feel good or sink into having this protector. So I can't imagine what it would have felt like to have that taken away, but then also to have my family be threatened because it wasn't just you, it was you and your girls. So I see what you mean by an initiation because it kind of forced you into that protector
0: role.
2: Oh, yeah. It was a big initiation. It really was. I was like, whoa. In some level, it felt very archetypal. It felt very much about the masculine trying to swallow up the feminine. And so it was, I really felt like I honored my spirit and the nobility of my spirit even by stepping it up and saying, no, you will not treat my family this way. I will build a case against you. You will be prosecuted when the laws catch up to you. That's how I proceeded. It was a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of tenacity because it took seven years, if you can believe that,
1: So, you're dealing with loss. You're dealing with a crisis at the same time. It's like sadness mixed with fear. I'm curious, what was going on in your mind? How did you get yourself through that? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline. Or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional health. On the show, so no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? I'm curious, what was going on in your mind? How did you get yourself through that? I think because of the work
2: that Richard and I have done in our lifetime, as far as what we teach in our books, the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books, and in his work in psychology and what I studied with him, you know, there's these five principles. If, if you look really closely at our work, these five principles apply to everything. they thoughts, moods, feelings, separate realities, and present moment living. I think that because I have such a deep understanding and awareness that these principles are the key to staying healthy and allowing your mental health and well being to be so present and have access to that so instantly. I think that I really was tested in a very powerful way because I was able to keep things in perspective and I was able to see this person as ill. I can honestly say I never hated him. I wanted him to stop what he was doing, but I never hated him. I saw him as a very pathetic soul that was really crying out for something that you know, was really sad. I felt really sad for this person that was so obsessed with something he was never going to have. And so there was a way in which I just kept it all in perspective, to be honest. And it's not to say that there weren't times where I didn't suffer because it was hard. It was really hard to build my social media. It was frustrating. Who was attacking my daughters and their friends. That was the most upsetting thing was the attacks that he would put on my family and how upsetting it was to my daughters to be dealing with this. Because while I had all these tools, you know, they were growing girls. They were young and they didn't have the tools yet. So it was an opportunity for me to teach them to be strong and for us to stand together as a family And I would say more of a facilitator than a distraction. I don't think there's any way to distract one's self from the physical reality of grief and loss. When you lose somebody so significant as your life partner or the father of your children in your home, there's no distraction from that. That person just isn't there physically anymore. So that's a big longing, a big missing. We recovered pretty well and fast from the trauma of being so harassed and bullied by somebody, you know, like, I think we were able to really keep it in perspective, um, use our sense of humor a lot with it. And it helped to take action. It helped to be taking action against him, building a case against him. I knew on some level that there was going to be an end to it someday.
1: So in my experience, I had a lot of trauma and it was hitting that rock bottom that kind of forced me into awareness and being more intentional with my life. But you had already been awake to those principles when, when you lost your husband. And one of the things that I teach is that it's not about not having the struggles or even not having the negative reactions, but having your toolbox that you can keep going back to in your weakest moments so that you don't go too far off the deep end. So given your background with teaching these self-help philosophies for so long, what was in your toolbox to come at your situation with awareness and kind of turn your grief into a passageway for your next level?
2: Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. Mine really was a journey of awareness, you know, and and inquiry. And I really saw this as what it is. And I believe that we go through hard times so that our soul can grow and that so that we can have this growth and that, that we choose this to have this growth, you know, I really didn't want to miss that. I naturally, instead of staying super busy that first two years, I slowed down and I went into more stillness. I mean, I didn't really even leave my home for the first four months where I was in a real cocoon. And I remember getting my kids ready for school and coming back to home and just. You know, allowing myself to be sit in stillness, sometimes for hours, and allowing myself to cry and feel my feelings and use those feelings as a mechanism to empty out this tremendous sadness that I never was accustomed to feeling, but was instantly there, you know, instantly there. And yet, there is a point at which you do need to look at, and I did, I started to realize that. I could be sad about the same thoughts over and over again. And where my grief would take a turn would be for me to become aware of the fact that, you know, maybe I was beating myself up that I didn't know something was wrong with Richard and that I needed to stop doing that, that that wasn't going to be productive grief. You know, that was going to be destructive to my own self. And I needed to put any kind of societal measures aside and, Live my life the way I felt I needed to at this time. I had a dental appointment and I was in grief that morning. I just called them and said, I'm sorry, I can't come in. I need to just be at home today. Things like that, doing really incredible self care, choosing to spend a lot of time in nature. I would do a lot of walking, I would do a lot of hiking. Whereas before I was a runner and, you know, I would work out really hard and So to beat myself up, I was much more gentle on myself naturally in grief and much more compassionate with myself, treated myself very caringly, you know, would take long hot baths at night. I couldn't watch any television. I didn't turn on the radio. I was just too sensitive. Every song I would just bust into tears, you know, out in public. I didn't really want to grieve in public. That was one thing, you know, because I being a public person and being really well known in my community, I really didn't want eyes on me. You know, it was hard to hear everybody else's story about when they heard about Richard's death. People would naturally want to tell me that, and I just didn't want to hear it. You know, I, I didn't want to hold anybody else but my kids during that time. I looked at it like there's one life vest in the ocean. I'm wearing it, and my kids are holding on, and. If too many people come on our lifeboat, it's gonna sink. (laughs) I'm the lifeboat, and I only have room for two people, and that's my daughters and my golden retriever on that lifeboat.
1: (laughs) I think this is a really good point about how we support one another through loss. When I lost my dad, I did wanna talk about it, I wanted people to listen. I didn't want people to make me feel better. I wanted people to let me feel and be there for me, or leave me alone, but if I opened up to someone, I just wanted them to hold space for me. I loved hearing people's stories about my dad, but I loved hearing the stories about him that really embodied my dad's heart and his love for life. Or I loved hearing stories about him that I hadn't heard before, that were fun or even mischievous, but really just anything that spoke to his life. I did not want to hear stories about people's reactions when they found out he had cancer, or how sad they were he had cancer, or how the last time they saw him he looked totally different than he had a year before. Like Christine said, I only really had space for my own sadness. So if you're consoling somebody, focus on their life, not their death. And really the most powerful way that you can be there for someone is to just be there with your presence. There's a time and a place for collective grief, but it's probably not with the person that's grieving the most. Of course, it depends on your relationship with the person, but I suggest being mindful in this area. And again, just holding space for that person's feelings and putting aside your own for a while. What was the hardest part of having to also lead your daughters through healing while you were grieving so much yourself?
2: That's interesting because, you know, my daughters, I think, initially just saved my life. You know, I mean, knowing that I had to be here for them gave me reason immediately to live. Because, you know, when you lose your life partner and the love of your life, you know, you don't really want to be around. That's the reality. Initially, you just kind of go, okay, I can't see my life without this person in it. And especially when it's so sudden, like I didn't have any time to warm up to that thought. It was just my reality one day, you know, it was like he was alive and then he was gone. So I think when that happens to people, you have to shift really quickly and your kids can really help you in that way. And And then I remember thinking, wow, it's hard having kids because... You know, I'm in grief. I'm shattered. I'm crying a lot. I'm not the mom that they're used to seeing. I don't operate the same way. My memory wasn't very good. I was like in post traumatic stress. They were in post traumatic stress. There's a lot that goes on when you're grieving family. And mostly I would say that I looked at it like we had to do this dance and we did it beautifully, that I didn't want my grief to be hidden from them, but I also didn't want to disrupt where they were, you know? So as a mother, I was very sensitive to the fact that my daughters had to go back to school. It wasn't just that they had to go back. They wanted to go back. I mean, they wanted to live their lives because it was too painful to just sit around and think about their dad. But that said, they had a lot of kids looking at them and sometimes they would be in grief and be at school. And, you know, I remember when my daughter came home and she said, I can't believe so-and-so asked me what was wrong today. And I said, well, I'm sad about my dad. And the kid said, what do you mean? That happened months ago. <laughs> so it's like, or she'd hear these kids complain about their parents, or about their dads, and she would just feel so devastated. Like she'd want to scream, what do you mean you've got your dad? these kinds of things. And so with kids, what I found too, is that life really triggers their grief because they can kind of go along because they're very present moment oriented. They have busy, they got a lot, lot to do. Life can kind of trigger things like you don't make the soccer team or something happens at school. And it's just 20 times more devastating because it triggers that sadness. But On the other side of it, it's actually really healthy, you know, when things trigger it, because I always say you have to empty it out in order for you to create the space in your emotional being to bring in something new. And for people who think that they can avoid grief or positive think their way out of it, I'm going to tell you, you can't. (laughs) You have to feel it. And some people move through it relatively quickly. And other people take more time. And I will say that I find that the grief period is one of the most fertile times of your entire life for growth. And it's because you are vulnerable and it's because you are open. And as long as you open and you don't shut down and you don't become bitter, you become better. That's the choice is that you get to decide not that this happened to you, but you get to decide how you move forward in your life and how you step into your life. And it is a new beginning. It always is. When something big ends, something new is going to replace it and be there. And I'm not talking about a life partner necessarily or whatever. I'm talking about a life. It's your life and you're going to live your life from a new point of view than you did before. And things will change and they never will be the same. But, if you come at it from the hero's perspective and you don't become victimized by your circumstances and you embrace the healing journey, you will be better and you will be more alive and you will experience even more joy than you ever thought possible. And I'm a testament to that. I'm such a happy person anyways, but I wake up and I feel so excited to be alive and I mean, I didn't know that that was going to be the case. Believe me, (laughs) I really am so glad it worked out that way. (laughs) Because over the years, I've worked with a lot of people that have gone through huge loss, and you know, my path works. It works for them, and they're all really, really joyful people. Again, so I want people to know that there is a way to do it. There is a path to take. It is a journey, but it's for your soul's growth. It really is, and you will emerge the butterfly. You will emerge so whole and complete if you follow this path. And it's beautiful.
1: I love your story because you mentioned that you lived a very traditionally feminine role. And I know you co-wrote some of the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books, but most of it was really your husband's legacy. So I see it as you kind of coming out of the shadow of your husband a little bit and really embodying your own role.
2: I was holding a space. I really was. I didn't own my career as an author, even though we wrote together, we wrote Don't With the Small Stuff in Love together. And I wrote my first solo book while he was alive, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Women. I did not own my career as an author yet. I was happy to hold his space. He was always like, Come on, Chris, come on. <laughs> I'll you do it. I'm okay back here. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is interesting how the universe will force you into these roles, even if we don't think that we want it. It's like, no, you have a message to share. So here's how you're going to do it. We're going to create the circumstances for you to hold your light.
2: That's so true. I mean, I honestly, Melissa, couldn't have dreamed up my life, how I've lived it or how any awesome part of it. I wouldn't have had that concept with my background. But so I often say like, When people say, What's your five year plan? I'm like, I've never had one, and it's all worked out way better than I thought. (laughs) With the exception of Richard departing so early in our lives, you know, I would not say that worked out the best. But in the end, it is I think about all the people that I've met and the friends that I have today and the life I've lived. And it's been such an adventure. And it's all been very unplanned. And I kind of have learned that the unknown and is a really amazing creative space and that the more you can live in the unknown, the more that you can allow what's truly in your greatest expression to come forward and And life just has a way of unfolding beautifully. You know, when you're super present to it, you can be really present and stay very present. And of course, you know, make your plans, but be flexible within those plans. Nobody can live day to day totally, but I prescribe to not making as many plans as possible so that things can come forward for me. And it's worked out really
1: well. So I lost my dad when I was 19 and it's interesting looking back because there was this moment when I was 12 or 13 and we were in Yosemite on a hike and we were just talking and almost out of the blue he said something like that he knew I was going to go on to do great things even if he wasn't around to see it. And I remember it kind of taking me aback being like my dad's the strongest person I know why wouldn't he be around to see this? And so because it it stuck out in my mind. And after he died, it was like I was transported back to that moment. I could taste the air and smell the smells of Yosemite and hear his voice in my head saying that. So it almost felt like that moment so many years ago was specifically for my healing after he had passed. It was just kind of strange. So do you have any weird moments or almost divine intervention type moments with your husband? Oh, I
2: sure did. I mean, <laughs> in October, just three months before Richard died, we we're hiking up this hill and he turns to me and he says, "Hun."
0: And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order.
1: I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning.
2: In October, just three months before Richard died, we we're hiking up this hill and he turns to me and he says, Hun, you know what I love about the human spirit? And I said, What? And he said, I love that there's people in this world that take their greatest tragedy and they allow it to move them forward in their lives so their lives have a greater meaning. Wow. <laughs> Um, Like, you know, that really hit me over the head after he died. The other thing he would say a lot is that the circumstances of your life don't make or break you, but they reveal who you are. And these kinds of things that were really almost like instructions from him, I took very seriously. They were things that just came back to me when I really needed to hear his words. And the other part that I allude to in my book is that they really, your relationship with the person that you love that dies doesn't really have to end, and it's really up to you to continue it. Though I feel like they are very much available and want to be in a continued relationship with their loved ones. That love is eternal, and that just because somebody isn't in form, it doesn't mean they're gone. And I've really come to a very deep understanding of this because I feel like I have a lot of dialogue with Richard and. I know what he would say in certain circumstances and I sometimes hear him say things to me in my head. And my daughter just had this happen the other day. She was like going grocery shopping and leaving someplace and there was a homeless man. And she went back to Starbucks to get him some food because he said he had a sign that said hungry. And She stopped at the corner and leaned out to give him his food. And he just grabbed it and turned around. And she started to feel annoyed that he didn't say thank you. And then she heard her dad say, oh, come on, Jazz, you know, don't give somebody something for the reward of the thank you. Give it to him for the reward of what it means to give from your heart. And she said it was just so clear as if he was sitting in the car
0: with her.
2: And she could hear his voice and everything. And so I feel like there's this way in which we can choose that. And it makes our journey here so much more bearable. It doesn't it to choose to allow that love to exist and for you to think about your loved one and say their name and don't forget them. Like, don't forget them because it's painful to remember. Remember, because it brings you so much joy to experience their memory. And I think a person really knows when they've healed, when they've really grieved and healed, when you get back to a place of gratitude, because when you can feel grateful for the love that you've had, and it's not something that's causing you great pain any longer, because you feel grateful. And I knew when I was really beginning to hit my wholeness mark and healing when I started to really understand that I was so blessed and so lucky to have been loved by such a great man and to really be able to experience that love whenever I need to. You know, I always say to widows and people when you have lost a partner that you were happy with, that you still loved, you were in love, you know, your life was very full together you know, what happens is you lose that partner, but your cup is still more than half full with that memory and that love. And I can access that feeling of safety and love whenever I want to. And I can access a picture of Richard in my mind or his laughter or his voice whenever I want to, because it's so ingrained in my memory. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about being human is we can do that. And we should allow ourselves to do that because it allows us to still live our lives and still embrace the journey ahead and really embrace the moment with joy and that we don't have to move on. We can move forward and carry them with us.
1: It's true. And I think that's the beauty of deep relationships in general. I took something from the book, Think and Grow Rich a long time ago. And Napoleon Hill talks about having your invisible counsel. He used examples like Abraham Lincoln and Benjamin Franklin. And he knew enough about them, did enough research to think, what would they do in that moment? So he was using this for success. Well, his purpose was for business. So that basically it was like having this mastermind. But I found that the closer I get to people, the more I can do that in all my experiences, whether they're still here or not. So sometimes I think, what would my mom say in this situation? Or how would my stepdad handle this? Or What would my husband do? What would each of these people that I admire or that I want close to me do? So it's kind of like you're being counseled in these different ways by these different personalities. But what it takes in order to get to a place like that is really opening yourself up to hold space for them while they're here, while you're able to spend time with them, while they're in the present, so that their way of thinking really infiltrates into your mind. I just see it as really being able to take the best from anyone that you've developed any sort of relationship with. That's beautiful. That's very beautifully said. So I hope this isn't too personal, but what's been the process of letting go? Are you just accepting that was the love of your life or are you trying to open yourself up for new relationships? And if so, what's your process for that?
2: Well, I always say when your husband dies in your early 40s, you know, you're kind of at the prime of your sexuality, actually. (laughs) I was certainly not born a nun. So it was quite a challenging time, actually. I think it took me all but about five days to think about what I was going to do to satisfy my sexual needs. Like, how was I going to do this? (laughs) I mean, I was like, uh... Okay, what? No, I've never been without this man my whole adult life. How am I going to do this? I mean, I didn't even know really how to masturbate, as pathetic as that was. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is going to be a whole new thing, you know? So I have to say, like, truthfully, there were stages for me where, and I've talked to a lot of people about this. And when you've been with somebody for so many years and then suddenly they're not there, part of the annihilation and the identity crisis is that you were this person on your own. And for me, I was 18 when I met my husband. So I was 18 years, I was this person on my own. From 18 to 43, I was with him. And I was kind of dropped back to 18, where a lot of my insecurities that I had came bursting back, almost like they all these insecurities stood like a line of them at the door. (laughs) Suddenly, I was like, Oh my God, who am I? Am I an attractive woman? Is anybody going to find me desirable? How am I going to have sex? Who am I going to have sex with? All of these questions were just gnarly to deal with initially. And over the years, you know, I just found myself, I kind of wanted to get the first lover over with really fast because I just was like so anxious about it that had a really good friend. And so he became kind of my first lover. And that was actually perfect. I was comfortable, I could just get that piece over with, you know. (laughs) And then I started dating somebody. And it's been a very interesting relationship. I mean, we're kind of more in the friend zone. Now we've been through all the different aspects of relationship, but definitely have a soul contract with this person been after like, I don't know, 11 years, really still very close. And, you know, we're dating and I've dated other men. And I've met some very interesting people. And I've had even some great love affairs, but I've not come close to really truly partnering with anyone. And part of that is that now that I'm on this journey, I've discovered this total independent, sovereign woman. And I'm financially independent. I have a really fulfilling career. I've got five grandchildren now, <laughs> all by one daughter who's not even 30 yet. So I mean, I've had a very busy life the last 12 years. <laughs> so I'm really here to enjoy my life and I'm open, I meet people. But you know, I'm not interested in just partnering for the sake of partnering. I'm really interested if that person that was really a great life partner for me now came along, I know that I would recognize him. And it would have to be the whole package like I had the first time. And it might be a different package, but it'd have to be the whole package for me to say yes to that. And otherwise, you know, I'm really good on my own. So I have a really great vibrator too. So
1: (laughs) have you found it hard not to compare? Because you had this amazing man who had so much to teach you. And even teach the world. So I'm wondering when you have somebody that's such a perfect fit for you like that, how do you get beyond the comparison?
2: Well, I liken it to having children. Do you have children? I do
1: not yet. Or maybe I'm still figuring it out.
2: (laughs) No, not yet. Okay. So when you have your first child, you look at that first child and you cannot imagine being any more in love with a human being then you are in love with that child. It just doesn't seem possible that you could love another human being just as much. But then you have a second child and that second child is totally different than that first child. But you look at that child and you love that child and you have your whole heart in it. Well, love is like that. We don't discriminate like I love people fully. I've loved you know, a couple of men since my husband died, I think we're geared toward love. And I don't compare them to Richard. You know, in my mind, there's not a man that exists like Richard was. So in my mind, there's no comparison. You know, I don't draw a comparison. I think in terms of, does this person fit me right now? Is it a mutually nourishing relationship? What am I learning? You know, we learn so much by our relationships, by every different relationship that we have, you will learn a multitude of things about yourself, because, you know, the dynamic between people is what brings out these things in you. And while I may not have been a jealous person with my husband ever, I might have been triggered in a jealous way with another person. That's not a bad thing to have those things triggered and to become aware of them and to understand them and to soul search on them, you know, and That's the way I kind of look at relationship. I also have to ask myself if something's not going to add to my life, if it's detracting from my life. I'm not interested in pursuing it because I'm 55. I might have 15, 20, 30 years left, but I'm looking at the last third of my life. And I'm only interested in being with people and doing the things that add to my life. And that's my big distinction. Does this add to my life or does it detract from my life? And you can all, all of you who are listening can use that with everything, you know, like maybe not when you're first starting out your career, because let's face it, you know, when you're young, sometimes you do dump jobs and you have to just get into the workforce. But as you go on in your life and you think of it like this time is limited that I have here, very limited. And you kind of feel like you have forever. It's not forever. It's very short. And you have to start to really discern, you know, what do I want to spend my time doing? Nourishing to my soul? Is it nourishing to others? Am I giving to others while I do this? And certainly the things that aren't nourishing to us are taking our energy, our life force away. And I like to think in terms of that as far as how I make my own decisions.
1: Well, thank you for being so open and vulnerable and sharing your story with us. So, for listeners who are interested in finding your book, From Heartbreak to Wholeness, or learning more about you, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Go to
2: From Heartbreak to And if you go ahead and purchase the book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever, you can put your number in there. There's a process to retrieve about 90 minutes of soul mantra meditations that I've recorded for you. Because at the back of each chapter, there's actually a section, a workbook section, where you can write your own hero's journey if you choose. So It's it's, I lead you through that, and the soul mantras are guided meditations by me, and I think you'll find them very enjoyable, and I just want to say thanks, Melissa, for the work you're doing, what a light you are for the world, and just thanks so much to your listeners for listening.
1: This episode really got me thinking. You know that little nugget of wisdom that Richard Carlson told Christine about people turning their tragedy into... The reason for living and why they grow. Well, there's the obvious intentional wisdom in that, but then it's just so cool how he can leave something so inspiring with his wife and that those are the messages that she has after he's gone. And what if we all were just a little bit more intentional with what we said to people? What if we tried to open ourselves up to that universal wisdom that's always around us and we always spoke that truth? Because it's just like anything else. The more often we grasp for that universal wisdom, the more often we open ourselves up to it and even allow it to infiltrate us just a little bit. The more often that that'll come to us, that the universe will give those things to us. So what are you leaving behind for your loved ones? What's the last thing you said to somebody that you really care about? Maybe we should all be just a little more intentional about that. All of the links in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 062, including a link to Christine Carlson's book from heartbreak to wholeness and some of the don't sweat the small stuff series. Support this show by supporting our sponsors, or if you love Mind Love, share the love. Tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker about it, and please hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And for bonus points, go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe there, because Apple's podcast metrics help me a lot. Also, for some extra inspiration between episodes, sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com or text MORNING to 444-999. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning
0: into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.